Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. It's good to be in Deuteronomy 6 this morning. Next week, we hop into the book of Hebrews. Great to have Pastor Chris back with us and Sarah and their family. Good to see you guys. Welcome back. I hear somebody clap. That's Jerry. That's right. Good to be back. Um, But this morning, we're in Deuteronomy 6 with a sermon titled, The Greatest Command. The Greatest Command. You know, we love to talk about, as, as Americans and as people, who and what is the greatest. The greatest of all time, we often refer to as the GOAT. Um, as you can see on the screen there, the G-O-A-T, not the scapegoat, but the greatest of all time. Who is the GOAT? Um, and so if, you've, you know, if you're a big Broadway fan, maybe you, you like to sit around and argue, is it uh, Idina Menzel with her performance in, Broad, or, uh, in Wicked, excuse me, or Lin-Manuel Miranda in Hamilton, or Hugh Jackman? Um, you know, who is the goat of Broadway? I don't know. We can debate later. S- seminary nerds, they'll get together, right? Who's, who's the greatest reformer of all time? Is it Luther or perhaps Calvin or maybe Zwingli? Um, in athletic circles, we love to debate, you know, who's the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron? Is it Michael? Trump is tweeting about it. And thanks to Photoshop, we know that LeBron would dunk on Michael. Just joking. Le- Mike would absolutely dunk on LeBron. There's no doubt about it. But we love to debate who is the greatest of all time. Who's the greatest? And not only, not only do we debate this, we like to proclaim it of ourselves. Right? It was Cassius Clay who famously said, I am the greatest, six months before he won the world heavyweight title. Interesting fact there. It was Nelly who famously told us that he was number one because two is not the winner and three nobody remembers. Right? We, we love to talk about who is the greatest of all time. And like Solomon actually told us thousands of years ago, there's actually nothing new under the sun. We always want to know who and what is the greatest. And so as we look at Deuteronomy 6 this morning, we actually want to look at it through the lens of Mark chapter 12, which will be on the screen, and I'll read, and, and you'll see that this question of who and what is the greatest is not a new one at all, um, even though we still love to engage in it. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up to him, that is Jesus, and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? He might have said, which commandment is the goat? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so this theologian comes to Jesus and says, you are the greatest of all time teacher. And since you're the greatest of all time teacher, let me ask you, what is the greatest of all time command? And he takes us back to Deuteronomy 6. And that's where we are this morning. And the outline is about as simple as you'll ever find this morning. It's just two points. Number one, a right view of God. Number two, a right response to God. Right view of God, right response to God. We'll walk through those. The first one is the right view of God. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if you notice, it's, it's interesting what Jesus and Moses say here, because when we think of commands, we think of go do this, right? But when the, when the man asked Jesus, what's the greatest command, what does Jesus say? He doesn't start with go do this. He says, here, know that the Lord is God alone. 
See, you can't have the command without knowing the fact that undergirds it. It's the foundation for it. And if you try and follow the commands of Scripture without the first statement of who God is and what God has done for you, then you reduce Christianity down to willpower. And coming to church ends up being more like, hey, just be better, be the best you, instead of recognize the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, receive his grace, and give that grace to others. You see, you have to start with the command, the fact of who God is and what he's done, and then the commands that go do this flows out of it. Now, when we come to Deuteronomy 6, it's probably the most famous passage in the Old Testament, and it's called the Shema, or listen in Hebrew. And so being a follower of Christ always starts with a posture of humility and of listening. Listen. Don't think you know, how, don't think you know everything and have all the answers. And it says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so in, in the Hebrew, there's a couple of um, meanings. So there's two things implied by that that the English loses a bit. One is the internal unity of God. Monotheism, you might say. That, that's the part that the English gets. But what the English loses a little bit is there's an aspect here of there is only one God. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is God alone. The exclusivity of God is also being taught here. And so as you look at it and we say, okay, we see there's only one God. He's the only one worthy of worship. Moses then jumps into what we ought to do. And it's, it's interesting, why doesn't Moses argue for the value and worth of God? He just states it. Right? If, he, if he's going to ask you to love God with everything you have and commit all of your life to teaching the next generation, wouldn't it make sense to ground that a little more appropriately and argue for the value and worth of God? We may think that. And that this, brings us, this brings us to the importance of reading the Bible in context. Because Deuteronomy is a speech from Moses to the people right before he hands off the leadership to Joshua. They enter the promised land. And so when Moses says this, he's actually building on the argument that he's been making through the whole book of Genesis, the whole book of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, the whole book of Numbers, and then you come to Deuteronomy 6. And so you can't read Deuteronomy 6 without first seeing it through the lens of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Right? And this is a passage that we often will go to as a key parenting passage. And while that's there, it's really not at the heart of what Deuteronomy 6 is teaching us. It's not at the heart of it. And so when Moses reminds the people of who God is, what are the stories, what are the battles, what are the victories that are going to be coming to their minds as they recount the last four books of the Bible, the history of the Israelite people? And I could walk through that this morning with you, But I found this video that kind of walks us through that. Because when we come to Deuteronomy 6, we need to understand when Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We need to first understand that as the Israelites would have heard it. And what are the stories going through their mind, the victories that God has won? So it's about a 10-minute video that sort of explains and walks through this in a a poetic way. Um, And I want you to listen to it from the standpoint of how would the Israelites hear this? What images of God, what victories that God has won are going to be coming to their mind as they hear this core passage in Deuteronomy 6? Let's go ahead and hit the video.
The Lord is a man of war. I mean, he swept Pharaoh's army into the sea like you would brush a locust off your shoulder. <laughs> Can you imagine? All our oppressors, for generations, swept into the sea. And we sang, and we sang, and we sang. What was it the women sang, Mom? Oh, you know it. I know, I just I like it when you sing it. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth with words. He'd speak and things would just be. He brought order from the chaos of the sea. No rivals threatened his reign because he made everything. But Moses says that when God made us, he breathed into dust. A careful craftsman replicating royal image to cover every inch of the earth. Our existence meant partnering with God in his mission. To cultivate all terrain and flourish like a garden well watered. A fruitful people friends with their God. But sin slithered in. A serpent spoke seemingly sweet deceit to Eve and Adam ate from the tree and from his loins his progeny received a spiritual seed that reeks of death. Moses says we're made in the image of God but also in the image of that first man. But God promised Eve a seed who would crush that serpent's head then. Years later, he called our father Abram from his homeland and promised him a home and a seed who would turn into a nation and bless all the families of the earth. So Abraham went from Ur, his idolatrous life and land, to a land his offspring, plenteous as stars and sand, would one day possess Canaan. Moses says, God made covenant with Abraham. I will give your offspring this land. I will be God to you and your kin. Abraham believed, and he was counted righteous for that. El Shaddai visited the seedless womb of Abraham's wife, and their sighs turned into laughs. Baby Isaac was born. Jehovah Jireh provided, and from him came two great nations, but just one seed would possess God's promised inheritance. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, that deceiver, met God at a rock, wrestled and got his name changed from deceiver to he who strives with God. Israel, our father, birthed our twelve tribes and his twelve sons, but through one beloved, sold as slave, betrayed, abused through brotherly hate, driven away but by God made great through rejected Joseph's providential pain, Israel was saved. Thank you.
And there in Egypt, Jacob blessed our 12 tribes and reminded them Goshen wasn't their home. God would surely visit them and plant them in the promised land. Yet, severe oppression came next. Ruthless slavery, mortar, and brick. Years of affliction was it, long enough for God to forget all that he said to Abraham. All our baby boys got caught in the crossfire of that serpent Pharaoh's guile. Nine months they swam safe in our wombs, then drowned in the mouth of the Nile. My mom's brother, my uncle, slain before he knew a name. Our seeds sapped before budding root and shoot discarded. We were a threat to them. Oh, how we longed to be drawn from the bitter, bloody waters. We were drowning. Generations of slavery. And counting. But God heard. God saw he would not forget his covenant. He knew us, and to Moses made himself known. In a fiery bush he told him his name, Yahweh, the one who absolutely exists. I am who I am, not just one among the so-called gods of Egypt. Then, with a mighty hand, I am shut the mouths of Egypt's false gods. In nine plagues worked wonders then. The tenth spread death to all except our homes. Covered in the blood of innocent lambs, slain for our sake. Their flesh and bitter herbs we ate till Yahweh passed over us. Moses said, remember this day when we were thrust from the house of slavery in a great exodus to go serve the living God who in fire and cloud went before us and by way of wilderness led us to watch that wonder of wonders. We walked through a sea on dry land, then saw our enemies drowned by the strong hand of our God. For milk and honey, we were promised land ready. Get ready, cause here we coming. Buddy led us through the wilderness, seven weeks of testing, so there we would see his able hand of blessing. Instead, we rushed to judge this God a con, wondering if he was with us or not. Then at Sinai, the mountain of God, Yahweh made covenant with us, said he saved us in love so we'd serve him with trust. So all of Israel said, Amen, we'll do all that God says. So God gave them holy laws, laws that call for faith in the God of the Exodus, laws that called his loved ones to love him back. Yes, 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 we will obey. Yes, we will obey. That is until Moses delayed upon that mountain and they crafted golden calf to worship. Had it not been for Moses' intercession, God's wrath would have wrecked us. But God in steadfast love, renewed the covenant and allowed us to build his tent where his glory again descended. Then, after many long days, God was ready. 
After many long days, God was ready. Shrink. Shrink. Ready for milk and honey, ready for milk and honey. We were promised land ready, get ready, cause here we coming. We left Sinai in an orderly march, led by the presence of our holy God. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. But was his guidance in cloud and fire not enough? Miraculous manna from the sky, not enough? All of his wonders and signs, not enough? God led us straight up to the edge of Canaan. And all the way there, the people kept saying, Oh, for meat to eat, this man is boring. We miss Egypt. Look at our misfortune. So God sent spies to scope out the promised land. But all but two came back and said, We can't, we can't, the men are too big. We can't, we can't, we'll never ever win. And the people rebelled and refused to enter in all that God promised to Abraham. Oh, we beheld the justice of our God. He swore even then, this generation will never enter in. Their children alone will know the promised land. Even Aaron and Miriam failed to honor God, and even our Moses in sin struck the rock. Even our Moses, man of God, penalized. Even our Moses, even Moses will not enter in, enter into the promised land. I was born in the wilderness about 30 years back. Now I stand at the plains of Moab by the Jordan before the promised land. Moses, our mediator, is inching close to death. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. Forty years of God's amazing faithfulness. Forty years of sinning. Forty years of death. Forty years of wondering if God has our back. Forty years to raise up my generation. Forty years to teach us trust in the God of our salvation. Is Yahweh worth following? The God who works wonders, but let us hunger? Will he still go before us, despite our parents' blunders? Even so, what grieves me most, this disturbing question, how will we keep our end of the covenant and remain in God's blessings? The seed of sin in our hearts seems the greatest threat to keeping the laws of God's covenant. The seed of sin in our hearts seems the greatest threat to loving God back to loving God back. The seed of sin in our hearts seems our greatest threat. The land is good. Yahweh is good. But will we listen and live? Adina, hey, are you okay? I'm sorry. Uh, it was a dream. My, my, My love, you need to come. Moses is about to speak. And Moses is about to speak, and in Deuteronomy 6, he speaks. And what does he say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's God alone. There are no other gods. This is the God who speaks and creates out of nothing. The God who delivers when all hope seems lost. The God who continually shows mercy when his people refuse to listen and instead take credit for the good in their lives. We must have a right view of God first. As A.W. Tozer has famously said, 
What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so here in Deuteronomy 6, we see the stories, the victories, the battles that God has won. His faithfulness and his mercy is all in the background of the Israelites as they hear this. And it reminds them and it reminds us today that our view of God is almost always too small. It's almost always too small. We think we're doing more and we think he's doing less than what's really going on in the world. But when we get a right view of God, and when our minds are blown by him, and our affections are stirred by him, and when our gaze is captured by him, and our hearts are seized by the God of the universe, then, and only then, will the right response follow. So we must start with the right view of God, is what Moses tells us. And then he moves to the second point to say there is a right response to God in verses 5 through 9. And Moses splits this up into two sections. There's the the personal response we'll see in verses 5 and 6, and then there's a corporate response to follow after. So the right response to God begins with a personal response. Look back at your copy of the scriptures with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll read verses 5 and 6. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, the personal response always precedes the corporate response. Because we will always reproduce who we are, not what we know. God is after the souls of men to worship and glorify him. And before I can influence anybody to do that, I have to have my own heart transformed first. That's why the personal precedes the corporate. Because I'm always going to reproduce who I am not what I know. The same is true for all humans. The negative aspect of that is also true. As as John Piper has said, the greatest stumbling block for children in worship is parents who don't. So Moses is saying here, you need to love God with everything you have, with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You might say, we should love God with our time, our talents, and our treasure. It's all different ways of saying, love God with everything you've got. A couple of weeks ago, I had a birthday, and uh, it it was cool to see my kids starting to get excited for dad's birthday. So I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And so the the two older ones got up early, and they start setting up the house and tying streamers, you know, to my chair for my birthday and all these cool little things that little kids do. It was was fun. Um, And I I go to work. We have have our breakfast. I go to work. I come back. And... um, and they just sprint to the door. They're like, Dad, you're finally here. We spent the whole day getting ready for you. We made your favorite kind of cake with Mom. You know, Rayanne's like, I got to stir. And all these things that Emily's doing with them. They're bringing me their birthday cards. And they're so excited to tell me. So I come in and I sit down in the recliner. And I start to open these cards. And there's like four cards. And I mean, these things are stacked thick. You'd think there was wads of 20s in there if they weren't coming from a three-year-old. Um, and you go to open it, and what's inside? Now, if, you, if you've had little kids recently, you'll remember. This. One of the most valuable things to a three-year-old is an entire sheet of construction paper, not one that's torn in half, and one that's completely blank. It doesn't have any scribbles on it. And that's what I have, multiple in every single card, with drawings on them. Oh, Tess, you drew me an eyeball. Yeah, I did, Dad. <laughs> She's so excited to give me this picture. And I'm looking at the different things drawn. And she says, and dad, you missed it. I wrote my name on there for you. 
Now, it was backwards, I'll mind you, but she'd written her name, and she was so excited for that. And what do I take away from that? I'm looking at She wants to love me with her time, right? She gets up early in the morning to prep this before I get up. She could be watching Daniel Tiger. Instead, she's getting ready for me tying streamers. Dad, I'm going to give you my time. And then all day long, what's she excited to do? To love me with her talent. Dad, I can draw eyeballs. And I'm no ordinary five-year-old. Dad, I can write my name backwards for you. And she's just thrilled. Like, Dad, how could you miss this? Like, you saw the picture, Dad, but I wrote my name. These are the talents she has, and she's joyfully and just abundantly giving them to me. And she's loving me with her treasure, because not only is she giving me full sheets of construction paper that are not torn and they're not scribbled on, do you know how she closed the card? Now, not with, you know, like the, I don't know, the adhesive you lick and put on there, not with scotch tape, no. She put princess and mermaid stickers on there to close it down. These are the most valuable resources a five-year-old has. Now, the funny thing, we laugh about it because Emily and I bought those things for her. And when they run out, we're going to buy more of them. They are not valuable to me at all. I don't need her time. I don't need her talent. I don't need her treasure. And yet, what makes her gift way better than any cash gift, gift card, or clothes I'm going to get for my birthday? It's the abundant overflow of, Dad, I want to love you with my very best stuff, and I can't wait to give it to you. Isn't that how it is with us and God? He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our talent. He doesn't need our treasures. But he delights in his children generously and joyfully saying, God, I want to give you my best, my best time, my best talents, my best treasures. I want to give them all to you. And just like I delight in Tessa and Rayan and Grace doing that, so God delights in us doing that. It's not out of need, but he loves to see his children rejoice in him. Now, most of the time we think we're doing that, but our our responses often kind of rat us out and show that we're not actually loving God with all that we've got. And Deuteronomy 6 very clearly paints this holistic view, right? Love God with heart, soul, mind, strength, and these commands shall be on your heart. There's a constancy involved. And so we need to work towards a holistic understanding of loving God with everything we've got. And there's some incomplete views we often adopt. One of these is, I know I'm loving God well when I'm avoiding bad things. Maybe you 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 grew up around church, you heard it said, you don't uh, smoke or chew or go with girls who do, right? Or, you know, more more modern language. Hey, I feel like I'm really walking with God. I'm doing good because I haven't haven't cussed at my wife recently. I haven't watched porn in a couple weeks. And you know what? I'm not yelling at my kids as much as I used to. I'm trying to avoid bad things. And when I'm avoiding bad things, that means I'm doing really good. Now, you shouldn't do those things. But if your view of the Christian life is I simply avoid bad things, you have a horribly deficient view of what it means to be a Christian. So that's part of it, but it's incomplete. Another incomplete part is that we do good things. So, man, I'm really growing. I'm walking with God. I'm really loving him because I've been faithful coming to church. I even started helping with the coffee carts. Thanks, Greg McKinnon. Um, Good to have those back today. Um, You say, hey, I've I've been praying a lot recently. I'm faithful to do all these things. Doing good things is also important, but it's an incomplete view. Because we can easily do good things for God as sort of our our own selfish and subversive way of getting him to give us what we want. It ends up 
coming back to me, and I'm doing this because I want the reward, not because I'm actually doing it for God. This is what Jesus talked about in the, uh, the parable of the two lost sons in Luke 15. Maybe you've heard it talked about the parable of the prodigal son. Right, The prodigal goes off, he shames the family name, destroys the inheritance, blows it all on stupid stuff, and, and that's been well documented. And he comes home, and the older brother has been doing the right thing all along. He's been doing the good things, checking the boxes, taking care of the animals, taking care of the crops. And when the father throws the party for the younger son, the older brother is furious. It's like, Dad, how can you do that? I've been doing all the good things. I deserve that. And that's what we do. We say, I'm doing these good things, but it ends up being about us. Tim Keller said it this way. Elder brothers may do good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves or for the love of people or the pleasure of God. They are not really feeding and clothing the poor. They are feeding and clothing themselves. Elder brothers may be disciplined in observing regular times of prayer, but their prayers are almost wholly taken up with a recitation of needs and petitions, not spontaneous joyful praise. This reveals that their main goal in prayer is to control their environment rather than to delve into an intimate relationship with a God who loves them. You see, loving God is more holistic than just avoiding bad and doing good. Perhaps this morning you need to repent of the good that you've been doing for your own glory instead of for God's glory. If both of those are incomplete views, what else is involved? And I think one of the pieces we need to talk about more is that faithfully loving God means taking risks for God. This is the, ties in the parable in Matthew 25 about uh, the parable of the talents, right? And so that the master leaves and he entrusts talents to his servants. And the one gets five talents. And what does the faithful servant do? He takes a risk, he invests it, and turns five into ten. And then the next servant is given two talents. And what does he do? He also takes a risk, and he invests it and turns two into four. But the last servant is given one. And he says, I don't know. It's a little risky. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Let's just play it safe today. Let's take the prudent approach. Let's not go all in just yet. Let's just bury this thing and make sure that we can kind of keep the status quo. Let's play it safe. And when the master comes back, he says, you wicked, lazy servant, you wouldn't take any risks for me. You see, you look around the rest of the scriptures and you see taking risks for God as an excellent indicator of, am I loving God with everything that I have? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood before the king and said, we're not going to bow down to you. And you're going to throw us in that fiery furnace, and our God can save us? And we get that that's probably going to happen, but it's a risk we're willing to take. And if he doesn't save us, and it turns out poorly, and sometimes it does for us, that does nothing to mean that our God is not God alone, and does nothing to mean that he's not just as good. We will take that risk. Esther, what did she say before she went before the king? If I perish, I perish. But I'm going to take this risk for the glory of God. This is all over the life of Paul. He says, hey, wherever I go, I know that people are trying to kill me, trying to beat me, and they're going to think I'm dead and leave me outside the city, but I'm going to take that risk because those people need to know who God is and what he's done for them. We must take risks. And the thing is, our world is always begging us to take risks. And when we take risks for something, what it does is it reveals what we love. 
So what do I mean? What are we always taking risks on? Let me explain a bit. Um, With our families, right, there's a risk that we'll take to take a crazy, crazy, crazy academic load for our kids and to be involved in 37 extracurriculars and run ourselves into the ground. We have no time to do anything because this is the risk that's needed to get our kid into the college they want, to get into the degree program they want, to get the career track that they want, and in the end, it'll pay off. And we go crazy, 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 just nonstop. And church becomes just another, yeah, check the list, another thing to do. I'm running in a circle. And our kid's ability to listen to Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God, is severely impaired because we're taking a risk. We think the payoff is worth it, right? How else do we take risks? Well, we, we live our whole life on our devices, right? There's all kinds of risk involved there. If there's, there's trouble we can get into on our devices, right? But how often do we not take appropriate steps to set up some accountability measures to block ourselves from places we ought not be on our devices, and we're passively taking a risk? I'm going to risk that I could go somewhere I shouldn't because I'm not going to take action. There's, there's risk we're taking all over the place, right? And the risks reveal that which we love. We love our sin, And so if we think we can kind of keep it in a corner and we can manage it, then we're okay with that. And we we love our kids and we'll take risks for them. But why are we not taking risks for God? J.D. Greer has said it this way. He says, failure to risk our lives to the fullest potential for the kingdom of God is as wicked as the most egregious violations of the laws of God. Failing to take risks for God reveals that we actually lack love for God. And so what does this look like? What are some good risks for the sake of the gospel that we ought to be taking this week and next week and in the weeks to come? Right, that's kind of the next question. Like, okay, what does this look like? Now, let me just toss a couple out there. Labor Day's coming up, right? Why don't you risk your privacy and instead of inviting somebody from your Sunday school class over for a barbecue, walk across the street and have an awkward potential conversation with your neighbor and invite them into your home and you put your privacy at risk to reach out to them. Maybe you ought to risk your comfort. Ken and Kendra Phillips are leading Good News Bible Clubs in Wayne Township Elementary Schools there. Kids that are desperate for hope, desperate for love, and they're listening to the gospel. And it's a wide open door 15 minutes from us. It's not comfortable. It's not Brownsburg. It's going to look a little different, but why don't you risk your comfort and go join them in that? We just need people to come alongside them. There are other elementary schools that that could open the exact same club if we had the people to do it. Maybe that's the risk you're supposed to take and risk that comfort. Maybe you're supposed to risk your finances. You're clinging to that with a white knuckles. I can't, I can't give every week, every other week, every paycheck. And God's saying, take a risk. I will take care of you. I am good. I own it all. You will be okay without your mermaid stickers. Whatever it is, God loves generous, joyful giving of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And we end up failing to take risks for one of two reasons. Either one, we're risk averse and we don't trust God. That's what it tends to be with our finances. Or we value other things above him, and we'd rather take risks for the things that we love more, namely ourselves. You see, Moses commanded Deuteronomy 6 to love God with all of our being means that we have to embrace grace. Why do we have to embrace grace in this? Because when we say love God with every aspect of you, 
I guarantee you, you won't love God with every single aspect of you for every single second for the rest of your life. So we're certainly going to break God's law and disobey this command. And as we must constantly strain towards personal holiness and loving God more, this also forces us to trust in Jesus and the perfect life that he lived rather than the pretty good life that we ascribe to ourselves, however we define pretty good. Do you see how that works? We're not going to be able to perfectly measure up. That's the whole point. And so it forces you back to saying, I'm going to embrace grace that Jesus loved me. And his righteousness is on my account, not my own righteousness on my account. That's the personal response, verses 5 through 6. The second part of the right response to God is a corporate response. Look back at the scriptures with me. Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children, And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, there's this emphasis on continual integration into daily life. Continual integration. He says to do it diligently and meticulously and work hard at this. He uses the language of when you sit and when you walk and when you rise and when you lay down, write it on the doorpost. Put it everywhere. This should be every aspect of your life, continual integration. And so it brings us to that age-old conversation of, hey, should I be looking for family devotions, carve out a time, or, hey, should I just try and grab some teachable moments here? Right? What do we do? What should I be doing, Pastor Justin? You should do both. You should do both. We know there will be times where it feels like life is too busy for family devotions. That's Just raise your hand. I've experienced a time where life felt too busy to carve out family devotions every night. Okay, we got a lot of liars. Hands are starting to go up. That's better. Okay. Um, we, we felt that, right? And God knew that you would say that. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Like that's not a surprise to him that your life feels crazy. Um, and so he says, hey, weave these truths into all of life. So if you're out, you're driving somewhere, Talk with your kids about the majesty of God in creation. When you feel exhausted, and you're like, oh my gosh, I just cannot keep up. Or your kids feel exhausted. This huge test, they're staying up late, they're stressing out. Why don't you talk about the wisdom of God in telling us to rest? Because if we didn't, we'd run ourselves into the ground. What a teachable moment to grab right there. Maybe you just, on the way home, you just use simple debrief questions. Right? You, you know, how, how's your day go? Even my five-year-old has got that down. Last year, she told me, she said, eh, about the same as the rest. <laughs> okay, go highs and lows. What's the high of your day? What's the low of your day? And as they start to talk about them, hey, how does that make you feel? And you're just going to catch this window into your kid's heart. And when you see where they're at, and they're, they're sharing these things, then it's up to you to figure out, How do I tie in the truth of the gospel to this issue that my kid is dealing with? The other aspect of teachable moments that I think we must embrace, this is key, is that we see the mistakes, the sins of our kids as divine opportunities. Divine opportunities. What do I mean by that? Well, everybody's had a kid pout at one point in time or another, right? Whether it's a two-year-old throwing a fit in the grocery store or a 17-year-old throwing a fit because they don't like the way the band director treated them. Everybody has seen their kids pouting in one way or another. 
And of course, when it's at home, it's easier to deal with because it's in public, it makes me look bad, and I'm more concerned about my reputation than my kids. I, I understand how all that works. But how do we use that as, a, as an example, an opportunity to speak into their lives, right? If I'm all concerned about me and I start to get angry because you're making me look bad, then I'm not going to show my kid what it looks like to walk in grace. But if I can embrace grace myself, say, hey, my, my reputation's not that important. Let's deal with what's going on in your heart here. All of a sudden, I've got a teachable moment where I can say, okay, this is this is a question we ask in the cookhouse, and maybe you guys have done something else in yours, but this is what we do. I'll say to our girls, okay, is there a good reason for you to be doing this right now, or do you just want what you want? Because I've learned a lot of times I make bad rules that there's actually a reason the kids should be doing something else. And so if I just take the heavy-handed approach, the kids are like, but dad, you didn't know my sister was dying. Like, quit spanking me for going to get help. You know, I was like, okay, you're right. It was the right thing to do. So, so I, I give them a chance. Like, hey, no, there is a good reason I should have been doing this. But I also make it easy for them to say, yeah, Dad, I just want what I want. And then right there, in that moment, by asking a good question, I've got a chance to say, ah, do you see the issue? It's not just that you need to change your behavior. You need a new heart because you want what you want in your heart. And only Jesus can give you a new heart. You can't manufacture that. And so we've got to see the times our kids screw up as opportunities to speak the gospel into their heart instead of getting angry about them. That's all on teachable moments. Family devotions is also a critical part. It's a both end, right? Both teachable moments and carving out time for family devotions. And this is something I, I know it can be tough, um, but we've got to work towards this. It's worth the effort to have these specific times of instruction. And even in those, I know it can sound kind of difficult, like what's Justin getting at? Family discipleship, what's he want me to do? No, you don't have to have a five-point sermon and a 35-minute lecture. In fact, in many ways, it's much better if you've got a few good questions to ask your kids as you sit down. And maybe you can sit down in the family room, you know, at 9 p.m. Maybe you sit down at breakfast. Maybe the best time for family devotions is actually during a 30-minute drive you have three times a week. Nobody said you had to do family devotions in front of the fireplace, right? There's spots everywhere you can be doing this and say, hey, we're just going to have a specific time to talk about this right now. Okay. In general, we've talked about those things. Let's get practical now on how do we do this. Well, we believe at Parkside that the family is the primary discipler of the kids, and then the church comes along and supports. Mom and dad, this is the task entrusted to you. As Psalm 127 tells us, Pastor Jared talked about that last week. Um, Deuteronomy 6 here is saying, hey, dads, tell your kids this. Teach your children these things. But then the church comes alongside and supports. And where do we see the church supporting taught in Scripture? Well, Psalm 78.4, let's read this. We will not hide them from their children. This is a passage to corporate Israel. We collectively are working together to not hide them from their children, but to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Deuteronomy 31, 12 and 13 Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. You should bring everybody together. That's why we have all of our fourth grade on up is in here. For Sunday morning during the service. It's some age appropriate for the younger, but it's a church supporting the families. And so specifically at Parkside, how do we do this? 
right? You saw the herd of little people get up and go to children's church. That's great. We're coming alongside and supporting there. Sunday nights, the vine is an outstanding opportunity to bring your kids out, have additional specific instruction in the Word of God, where we're, we're really focusing on two core things, on Scripture memory and on catechism. Scripture memory saying, hey, here's one specific verse that God says, and then the catechism gives you a little more zoomed out version. If you haven't had your kids in the vine, I'm going to encourage you to commit to quarter one. Starts next Sunday night, bring them out and do that. And in conjunction with the vine and our children's ministry, we have this family discipleship guide that I've, I've written and put together for us. Quarter chapter one, or sorry, not chapter one, quarter one, starting next Sunday. And what this does is this will, um, this will detail all the teaching that we're doing on Sunday morning and on Sunday night. It's got the verses, the catechisms, all that. And then there are family devotionals that go along with and since mom and dad, you're the primary disciplers, what we're going to do is the content starts with next Sunday, the 12th, but the devotionals precede that. Devotionals start tomorrow, so you are taking the lead in teaching and discipling your kids, and the church comes behind the next Sunday and reinforces and teaches and supports and reviews these things, okay? So these will be in the back wall, uh, behind the rock wall. They'll be in the bookstore. Grab one of those on the way out and bring your kids out to the vine, The second way that we're trying to just say, how do we make this really easy for you, is we've designed these these placemats, right? Everybody eats meals. What better way to review your catechism and your verse than on a placemat that's right there while you're eating your Cheerios, right? And so on the left, you see there's the catechism of the week. Now, the front, what you see on the slide is the preschool edition. What you see on the back is the elementary edition because we want to have age-appropriate catechisms for our younger kids. Um... And then the verse, you just write the verse of the week in dry erase marker, and then you can erase it and write it again, write, erase, and keep going on forever like that. Trying to set you up, say, Mom and Dad, you can do this. You can disciple your kids. We're here to support you, to let you take the lead, and we're going to give you every resource we can to equip you to do this well. We talked about the Right Now Media subscription. I'll, I'll deal with that in announcements. But we're bringing as much as we can to say, How do we disciple our kids to teach them the truth of God and equip you to go out and do that and to invest with boldness, to invest with intentionality, to invest with a clear strategy, and also to invest alongside your local church? Now, I said this earlier, but I have to say it again. We are going to fail at points. Right? There are going to be points where we don't measure up to what God has laid out here. And I understand it's not real encouraging for me to say that. It doesn't sound like a great pep talk. Um, but I'm not here to give you a pep talk, right? I'm here to tell you the truth and to point you to hope. And the truth is this. You won't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength for every second of every day for the rest of your life. The truth is there will be times when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, that you don't diligently teach the truth of God to your kids. There's going to be times when you blow up on your kids in public and respond in anger and lose a teachable moment because you're more concerned about looking bad in Walmart than you are the souls of your kids. And when that happens, you know, I know that Satan is going to launch those vicious attacks late at night when everybody else is asleep and tell you that God's ashamed of you and you're a terrible parent and you should be ashamed of yourself. And in that moment, what are you going to say? Will you fight to tell yourself and Satan and God that you're actually pretty decent deep down and 
the reporting isn't, you know, you're not as bad as the report said? Or will you fight to tell yourself and Satan and God that you did royally screw up? But praise God, you aren't clinging to your own goodness. You're clinging to the perfection of Jesus Christ, who was completely perfect and never sinned and always loved God with the entirety of his heart, soul, and strength. And when you preach the righteousness of Christ on your account, here's what happens. You are forced to accept his grace, his unmerited favor, instead of proclaiming that you've earned his favor, like the older brother in Luke 15. And when you've received grace, then you can give grace. You're going to start to change from the inside out when you face your failures and embrace the gift of God, the grace of God in the righteousness of Christ, instead of arguing for your own righteousness. When you've received grace, you then parent with grace. Your image as a perfect parent isn't so important. You can be okay with your kids messing up because you know their disobedience is a divine gift that you can use to do some soul work. But it all starts, it all starts with the question of which righteousness are you embracing? Embrace your own, and you are doomed to constant self-doubt and anxiety. Embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ, transferred to your account, and live in the land of grace, both as a follower of Jesus and as his commissioned ambassador to disciple his kids who are entrusted to you. As we go to communion here, I want you to think about this, Grace. Whose righteousness am I embracing? Am I telling myself I'm pretty good? Or am I clinging to the righteousness of Christ? If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're welcome to take communion, whether you're a member here or not. There'll be people at the tables to pray for you, pray with you, you can talk to. This morning, embrace the righteousness of Christ which will give you a right view of God and will lead to a right response to God. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We want to have a right view of you. We want to respond in the right way to you. But we struggle to embrace your grace. Lord, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds Help us to cling to your righteousness and not to our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.